So tonight's teaching is titled, What is the Church? So this is no doubt one that, a teaching that might ruffle a few feathers, but, you know, I'm just going to focus on what does the Bible say about who the church is? And does God even want us to use the word church at all? So I want to start in Matthew 16, 18, because this is the first instance at least in the New King James Version or the King James Version, where the word church is used in the scripture. So Matthew 16, 18 says, it says, and this is Yeshua speaking, he says to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the word church is translated from the Greek the Greek word ekklesia, ekklesia, spelled E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at where does the word church come from. So we're going to read a little bit of commentary before we really dig into the word ekklesia and how it's used in the scripture. But the word ekklesia is Greek word 1577, if you're keeping up with the Strong's Concordance, and it comes from two words. It comes from the word ek, E-K, which means out of, and kaleo, which means to call. So literally, the word ekklesia means a calling out, or a called out assembly. And it's the equivalent of the Hebrew word kahal. You could spell it Q-A-H-A-L, kahal. And it's Hebrew word 6951. And the word kahal is translated all throughout the Old Testament as assembly or congregation, never as church. So there's clue number one. But I want to start with a little bit of commentary. Now, let's just say that there are two sides of the camp as to whether the word church should be used or whether it should not be used. Because the, church, the side that says the word church shouldn't be used says, well, the word church comes from pagan origins. The other side says, no, it doesn't come from pagan origins. So you can find both sides of the argument online. So what I try to stick with, I'm trying not to go to places like everythingispagan.com. That, that really doesn't exist. But, you know, like people that are just really far to one side that are like, everything's pagan, everything's pagan. I've tried to stay away from that and stick to more mainstream. Because when you look at mainstream, you know a lot more people are going to look at that and try to lend a little bit more credence to that. So let's start with Wikipedia. What did Wikipedia say about the word church? Okay. So the word church, according to wikipedia.org, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which we just talked about, literally called out or called forth is the New Testament term referring to the Christian church, either a particular local congregation or the whole body of the faithful. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which that's going to come into play here in just a moment, the Septuagint was written about two to 300 years before Messiah was born. So the Septuagint, in the Septuagint, the, word, the Greek word ekklesia is used to translate the Hebrew kahal, and we just mentioned that a moment ago. Continuing from Wikipedia, 
says the English language word church. Now, this is where I want to show you how it, we kind of veer off the path a little bit. Because if church is the correct translation, it should be a direct translation from the word ecclesia. Here we go. The English language word church is from the old English word chiriche. You could spell it C-I-R-I-C-E. I mispronounce chiriche. Derived from West Germanic kirika, which in turn comes from the Greek kuriaki. You could spell that K-U-R-I-A-K-E. Kiriaki, meaning of the Lord. So the word church, when you trace back the etymology, does not come from the Greek word ekklesia. It comes from the word kiriake, which is literally means of the Lord. So it's a possessive form. Kiriake is a possessive form of the word kyrios, which is ruler or Lord. So back to the quote from Wikipedia, it says some grammarians, those that deal with grammar, and scholars say that the word has uncertain roots and may derive from the Anglo-Saxon kirka, from the Latin circus, and from the Greek kuklos for circle. Okay? Which, is the sh which shape is the form in which many religious groups met and gathered? Think of Stonehenge. They met in a circle. Christian churches were sometimes called kuriakon, which is an adjective meaning of the Lord, in Greek starting in the 4th <clears throat> century. But ecclesia and basiliki, where you get the word basilica, were more common. Okay, so here's another interesting note about the word circus. So it says, you know, as I mentioned before, some um, scholars believe that the word church throughout the line evolved from the word circus. And um, another quote from Wikipedia says that early Christian writer Tertullian claimed that the first circus games were staged by the goddess Circe, which is also spelled C-I-R-C-E, in honor of her father Helios, who is the sun god. So this is where you see the camp divided as far as the word church is pagan. No, the word church is not pagan because this side over here that says it is pagan says the word derived from the um, Greek goddess Circe, and then you have the camp over here that says, no, it, it comes from the word Kyriaki, and it has nothing to do with that. But the reason I pulled it from Wikipedia is because you've got, you know, godless Wikipedia here saying that early Christian writer Tertullian claimed that the first circus games were staged by the goddess Circe in honor of her father Helios, the sun god. So just the origins of that word, as they say, you know, some scholars are uncertain, but it kind of seems to be pointing in the direction that that word came from a place it shouldn't have come. So the word church, according to Wikipedia, comes from not the word ecclesia, but according to them, 
the word kyriake or even kuklos, which means circle, which is how the, the religious groups of that day would have met. So think of Stonehenge and think of all those pagan meeting places where they would have met in circles. All right, here's another quote, and this is from a website called wickedshepherds.com. It says, church, the word church, was employed by the King James translators to protect their own interest and to keep its readers from a proper understanding of the will of God. They were happy to let the people live in ignorance and superstition so long as the church was able to keep its position or of privilege. This word, talking about church, has created many false ideas causing much confusion and division among religious people, even among those who are striving conscientiously to serve the great God of heaven. The word church, according to this website, the word church is not of God. It is the product of man's own theological imagination, imagination and abject bias. It is in a class with purgatory, Easter, Christmas, transubstantiation, Eucharist, etc., for that matter, the same can be said of bishop and deacon. So all those words that this particular website used are words that you would call ecclesiastical words. They're not words that are in the Bible, but they're words that you hear used in the church. Kind of like the word Bible, kind of like the word rapture. You know, they're not found in the Bible or in the scriptures, but they're words that you would be familiar with and so this particular website is saying that the word church falls in that league because the word church is not in the Bible. All right, continuing on from wickedshepherds.com, it says, During the 15th and 16th centuries, some godly men knew of the evil that had been already perpetrated. In the 16th century, men of God like William Tyndale knew the word ecclesia did not translate as church. In his translation of the scriptures, instead of using the word church, Tyndale used the word congregation to place emphasis upon the congregation of God or the community of God's people who assemble only under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that is true. If you go and look at the Tyndale translation of the scriptures, anywhere where he uses the word, where the Greek word ekklesia is used, he uses the word congregation. And ironically enough, who put William Tyndale to death? It was the church. Keep an, um, going on from wickedshepherds.com, it says, he, talking about Tyndale, wanted to rid the Bible of the ecclesiastical words set in by a powerful clergy system and move the unscriptural focus from a building to the people. And that's, that's kind of the crux of the whole word here is when you see the word Ecclesia, it doesn't refer to a building. It refers to a group of people. It refers to the body of believers. And we're going to see that all throughout the scriptures. It does not refer to a building. Because normally when you think of church, and this is just how the word has been ingrained into our minds over the last however many years, it's just what we're used to hearing. We're used to associating the word church with a building. And that's not what the word ecclesia gets across. And that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna see here as we go along. 
All right, continuing on, another quote. This is from a website called petergoman.com. It says, when King James commissioned the King James Version, he approved 15 principles of translation which were instituted by Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London in 1604. These translation principles are as follows, and I'm not going to read all 15, and they're really easy to find if you just go online and look up 15 principles of translation for the King James Scriptures or the King James Bible, but I wanted to read number three, because this is the one that just kind of just, just comes off the page. Number three says, the old ecclesiastical words are to be kept, viz, which means namely, the word church not to be translated congregation. So these, this was one of the principles of translation, like I would call them a non-negotiable. So when the scriptures were being translated into the King James, because you had this, this, these previous interpret or these previous scriptures or previous versions, the Tyndale, all these different scriptures that used congregation. And then you get up to the King James Version and he said, they said, no. All the old ecclesiastical words are to be kept. The word church is not to be translated congregation, etc. So that kind of raises a red flag a little bit. But that one, that one is the one that just jumped off the page to me. Like, why would you, why would you translate it church when it's supposed to be translated differently? Because I believe it's to to get across a, a purpose of of an organization of a building rather than what the word is intended to mean. Now this, this is the last quote I'm going to read and then we're going to get into the scriptures. But this quote just kind of kind of brought it all home for me because this is from Britannica.com. This is not, like I said, these, this is not a, you know, a everything is pagan.com website. You know, this is Britannica.com. And it says, the fact that many Christians hold nominal or in-name only beliefs and do not act like followers of Christ has been noted since the 4th century. This is Britannica.com saying this. They're saying Christians have not been acting like Christians since the 4th century. The fact that many Christians hold nominal beliefs and do not act like followers of Christ has been noted since the 4th century when the church ceased to be persecuted. How did the church cease to be persecuted? Syncretism. Yep. Let's take everything that's pagan and let's syncretize it with the church. And that's exactly what happened during the 4th century. So... For Britannica.com to say this, I mean, it must be pretty bad if the world knows that Christians are not acting like Christians or believers are not acting like believers. All right, keeping on from Britannica.com, it says evangelical Christians believe that for church unity to come to pass, fidelity to not scripture, fidelity to apostolic doctrine and practice must be restored. 
So that's, according to Britannica.com, that's, that's what the church is longing to do, to stick to fidelity to apostolic doctrine and practice, and that has to be restored. What I'm going to read you next is just, just going to drive it on home. In 1948, the Ecumenical World Council of Churches, you caught the word ecumenical, right, was founded as a fellowship of churches which accept Jesus Christ our Lord as God and Savior in order to foster the unity and renewal of the Christian denomination. So, this is... Is this what God intends for his body of believers? For there to be that ecumenical, we're all sp spokes in a wheel, there's only, there's every way leads to God. Is that what God intends for his body of believers? Absolutely not. Does someone have a question? I guess not. I'll mute everybody. All right. Karen said, can you repeat that? The last part, it says, okay. So in 1948, the Ecumenical World Council of Churches was founded as a fellowship of churches which accept Jesus Christ our Lord, which accept Jesus Christ our Lord as God and Savior in order to foster the unity and renewal of the Christian denomination. So notice it's an ecumenical movement. Ecumenical means, you know, one religion, all religions kind of congealing into one unit, one, you know, kind of sounds like what's going to happen during the um, end times with the Antichrist. There's going to be a one world religion. That's what ecumenical means. But is this what God intends for his body of believers? Does God intend his called out assembly to compromise with the world? That's absolutely not what God intends. So what we're going to look at is we're going to look at how is this word ecclesia used in Scripture. So the word that's translated as church, how is it translated or how is it used within the Scriptures? Yes. Um, uh, to be fair to them, in 1948, that it wasn't the idea that Ecumenical in their context didn't mean all the religions coming together. It meant uh, attempting to foster understanding and a closer walk with the Christian churches. They would have been horrified at the suggestion, which you may hear a little bit more now, but there was definitely no notion that you were going to include other religions in that. It was to attempt to bring the East and the West particularly together and promote understanding between uh, the older churches and the Protestant ones. Yep. They, uh, they didn't really see themselves as being one religion. Well, they'd be rolling over in their graves now if they saw how things were, wouldn't they? Uh, yes, I think they would. Yep, absolutely. All right, so Warren says, why would they need gates in the New Jerusalem if it's spokes on a wheel theory? Yep. So, all spokes, all, for people to just say we're all spokes in a wheel, obviously have not read where it says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. 
But let's take a look at how the word ecclesia is used throughout the scriptures. So the word that is translated as church, how is it used throughout the scripture? So what we're going to do is we're going to start in the Old Testament. Because what I want, to sh I want to see how is the word ecclesia used in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was written about the 3rd century B.C. So about two to 300 years before Messiah was born. So there wouldn't have been any need or any use of the word church when they were translating the word ecclesia. So let's see how it's used. Let's start with Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9, verse 10. And this is Moses speaking. It says, Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Do you see the word assembly? That is the word kahal, but it's also translated in the Septuagint as the word ecclesia. So that word assembly Translated in the Septuagint is the word ecclesia. Now, if I, would tr if I were to take that word assembly and put the word church in there, would that, would that make a lick of sense? It says, when I've spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the church. It doesn't make any sense. So this is Moses saying, God spoke to you on the mountain in the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And we're going to look at another place where that same phrase is used. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18.16. Deuteronomy 18.16. We'll start in verse 15, but the key verse is 16. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, according to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly. There's the word, kahal, ecclesia, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Now, what happened in the day of the assembly? What, what was the big event that happened on that particular day that they're referring to? That's when the people entered into covenant with the Lord before the Torah was given to them at Mount Sinai. So that day that they assembled together, that's the day that God entered into covenant with his people. So that's when they became his kahal, his called out assembly, his ecclesia. And what was the... What was the condition? What were they supposed to do? When they entered into covenant with God, and we're going to look at Exodus 19 here in a little bit, so that's why I'm not turning right there right now. But when they entered into covenant with God, what were the terms of the agreement? Was it they can just do whatever they want to do and still be called God's people? God said, okay, you're entered into covenant with me, 
Now, here are the terms of the agreement. And that's when he gave them the Torah. That's when he gave them the, the instructions, the guidelines. All right, now that you're my people, here's what I expect you to do. Here's what I expect you to do. And so that day of the assembly, that day of the ecclesia, that day of the kahal, is when the people entered into covenant with the Lord and the Torah was given. Deuteronomy 31. And you know, ironically enough, back in Deuteronomy 18, what does the next part talk about? Moses is saying, God's going to send another prophet like me, talking about Messiah. And he said, his words, God's going to put in that prophet's mouth. And what words were that? Were they different words? They were the same words. They were the same words that Moses was giving to the people there in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 31.30. So essentially what we're looking at is when Yeshua spoke to Peter and said, on this rock I will build my ecclesia, I will build my church. Is he starting something new? Is it a new thing? Is it something new? Or is it something that has already been established from the beginning? That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through these scriptures. Deuteronomy 31.30. It says, then the Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel. That word assembly is kahal or ekklesia, if you look at it in the Greek. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So you might call this the song of Moses. And it, Now remind me, does the book of Revelation also speak of the, of the song of Moses? Chapter 15. Chapter 15. But it says, then the Lord spoke in the hearing of some of the assembly of Israel or all the assembly of Israel. All those who had entered into covenant with God, his kahal, his ecclesia, the words of this song until they were ended. Flip to the next chapter because these these are the words. All the words are in in chapter 32. Go to verse 43. This is a a verse that really just kind of pops off the page at you. So this is part of the song of Moses. It says, rejoice, O Gentiles. Does it say instead of his people or with his people? With. With his people. Oh, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries and will provide atonement for his land and his people. So, the Lord is calling through this song, He's calling the Gentiles, the people of the nations, to rejoice, not instead of His people, not in place of His people, but with His people. And if you wanted to be even more technical about it, the word with is not even in the Scripture there, because the word with is in italics. So if you take out the word with, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, His people. So how can the Lord call Gentiles his people? What do they have to be doing? Are they taking the place of his people or are they being grafted in with Israel? So 
did God intend for there to be two camps, a ham side and a lamb side? Absolutely not. There was a great mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with the children of Israel. And where did they set up camp? Did they have their own camp away from everybody from the 12 tribes? No. They were grafted in. They chose which tribe they wanted to join with. So these words are given to the assembly, to the kahal, the ecclesia, the called out assembly of Israel saying the Gentiles are to rejoice with his people. And right here, he's actually calling them his people. How can those of the nations be his people? What do they have to be? They have to be saved. They have to be grafted in. They have to put aside the pagan idolatry. So... Is there, it's too bad there's no place in Deuteronomy that tells us don't worship God like the pagans worship God. Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. Let's flip back there real quick. This time of year seems very fitting for this scripture to be read. Deuteronomy 12. Starting in verse 29, it says, When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And in verse 32, that word whatever literally is everything. So everything I command you, you will be careful to observe it. literally says you will keep or guard to do it. So God is saying, whatever I'm commanding you, everything I command you, don't add to it, don't take away from it. And that's exactly how the people of the nations can become his people. Because that's what God intended for his people to do was to shine a light to the nations around them to provoke them to jealousy. To say, what an awesome God that they serve with such righteous judgments and such awesome commandments. We want to go worship that God. We don't worship this stick we don't want to worship this rock because what has that done for us? And God even mocks the people that do that and says that and very nicely said, y'all are stupid. What are you doing? Has this rock done anything for you? Has this stick done anything for you except keep you warm? And so that's exactly what God is intending for, intending for his people to do is to provoke these nations to jealousy in order that people would be saved and join his people. All right, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Starting in verse 55. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is... The, the dedication of the temple is happening and Solomon is praying a prayer of repentance on behalf of the people. Starting in verse 55, it says, Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel. That word assembly is the word kahal or ekklesia if you look at it in the Greek. 
So he's blessing the ecclesia of Israel, the kahal of Israel. And I want you to listen to the words that he says to them. With a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he has promised through his servant Moses. So in other words, everything that God said came to pass. Do you see the word promise? In verse 56, that word promise is the Hebrew word deber. So that means every word that God spoke came to pass. And in verse 56 where it says, There has not failed one word of all his good promise. That word word and promise in that sentence, it's the same word. It's devar. One word has not failed of his good word. They just, I guess, didn't want to translate the word promise as or word. But literally, there has not failed one word of his good word. So how much of God's word, the words that came out of God's mouth, how many of those words, according to Solomon, have failed? None. Not one. Not one single one. So this is Solomon talking to the assembly, talking to the kahal, talking to the ecclesia. And he's telling them, y'all, God doesn't change. Every word that God speaks comes to pass. God's word never fails. God's word never changes. 57, verse 57, it says, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to do what? To walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. Are you noticing it's not saying me, my, my, my? The emphasis is on God. God, incline our hearts to you, incline our ears, our hearts to you, that we might follow your commandments, not our man-made rules, not our man-made regulations, your commandments, your word, your laws, your ways, which he commanded our fathers. And I wonder, those words that he commanded the fathers, are they different words than what Solomon is presenting to the people today? No. Verse 59, and it says, And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication, that's a prayer of repentance, before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause or the judgment of his servant and the cause or judgment of his people Israel as each day may require. Here's why. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God ain't owed. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. So, in that, in that speech where Solomon is giving all of these, these wonderful words of, of encouragement, he's talking to the assembly of Israel. He's talking to the called out assembly, the ecclesia, the kahal, whatever you want to call it. And did he say, hey, y'all, God changed his mind. You can go do whatever you want. Nope. You can go do whatever you want. God doesn't care. 
Grace covers it all. He said, God has called you out to be his people, to be a light to the nations, to be a light to all the nations around you, to all the peoples around you. Be loyal to the Lord. Keep his commandments. Walk in his ways. Love him with all your heart. Is that any different than what Moses told the people back in Deuteronomy 6? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. It's no different. The words are no different. And how many years separate Moses and Solomon? About 400 years, give or take. Because you've got the time of the judges in between. So you've got about 400 years and did God change his mind in those 400 years? So if God didn't change his mind, and we've got scripture after scripture that tells us that God doesn't change, if God didn't change his mind in that 400-year period, is God going to change his mind from then until now? And the word is no. All right, let's go to First Chronicles. First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28. All right, so the question is, what verse says they will be a light to all the world? That's in Deuteronomy 4. It doesn't use necessarily the word light, but the concept is there. So we just read in 1 Kings chapter 8 where the, where the people are supposed to be... Let me use the word correctly here. So the, they're to keep the commandments that the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. In Deuteronomy 4, to answer your question, it says, starting in verse 5, it says, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are here, as are, as are in all this law which I set before you this day? So the concept of the people, which Rachel brings up, Matthew five sixteen, where it talks about be a light to the world. Don't put your light under a bushel. Put it on a lampstand. Let the whole world see it. That whole concept is right here in Deuteronomy. What were the people supposed to do? The people were supposed to live according to God's ways in order to shine that light to the rest of the world, to provoke the world to jealousy that they might say, what great nation is there that God has God so near it as the Lord our God is to us? So when the people of Israel were starting to act like the world, what did God do? Did God pat them on the back and say, it's okay, you're just a human. He called them to repentance. He, called, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people to get them to repent. 
And when they reached a point where they just would not repent, God kicked them out of the land. And that's what we're reading in the book of Jeremiah on Friday nights. Is God said, enough is enough, I'm sending you out of the land. Yes, sir. Um, What was that precise Deuteronomy uh, reference again? I've missed it. I'm sorry. uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Thank you. You're welcome. And like Rachel mentioned, there's Matthew 5.16 that talks about being a light to the world. But that whole concept is underpinned here in the book of Deuteronomy. All right, let's go to First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28. All right, First Chronicles 28.8. We'll read verses 6 through 9, but the key verse is 8. That's where the word um, ecclesia or kahal is used. Starting in verse 6, it says, Now he said to me, It is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever. What's the next word? If he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day. So what's the caveat? God says, I'll continue the kingdom of Solomon. Your line, David, I will continue it forever. But what's the caveat? If they observe my commandments and my statutes as it is this day. So what causes the the kings to keep the commandments? Is it out of fear or is it out of love? It should be out of love. It should be out of love. Because when do you see, and throughout the scriptures, when do you see the great revivals with Hezekiah, with Josiah? It's when they hear those words and it pricks them to the heart. Because Josiah, when he heard the words of the Torah and he took them to heart, what did he do? He he tore his robes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and it said there was never a king who turned to the Lord in the history of the kings like Josiah did. And that's even more than David. I mean, so that's that's a big that's a big accomplishment, or that's a big um, compliment to have about your name. Verse 7, verse 8. It says, Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, that word is kahal or ecclesia, and in the hearing of our God, be careful to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children after you forever. So notice the phrase, the assembly of the Lord is used synonymously with Israel. It says, Israel, comma, the assembly of the Lord, comma. So, the assembly of the Lord, what does it say that, that they should do? It says they should be careful to seek out the commandments of the Lord their God, that they may possess this good land. You looked out the word all. Some of the commandments? No, all the commandments. Ah, all the commandments of the Lord your God, 
that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children after you forever. So what's that key word that I left out? All. All. As for you, my son Solomon, know the, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the, God, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the, of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will pat you on the back and say it's okay. It says he will cast you off forever. So, how many choices was Solomon given right here? Was Solomon given just 10 different choices, pick the one you like the best? Or was he given two choices? He said, serve the Lord your God, or if you forsake him, then you're toast. You're cast off forever. And that in verse 9, where it says, know the God of your father and serve him, those are commands. So know the God of your father, serve him with a loyal heart, and the Lord searches and understands all the intents of your thoughts. And if it says at the very end, if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. The word forsake is Hebrew word azav, A-Z-A-V, azav. And that's Hebrew word 5800, 5800. That word forsake is also used in Jeremiah 16.11. So let's flip over to Jeremiah 16.11 to see how that word azav is used. Because that's, it's very strong language for God to say, if you forsake me, I'll cast you off forever. So what exactly does that mean? That it, well, one thing, if God's going to cast me off forever, I definitely don't want to forsake him. But what does that mean? What does it mean to forsake him? Let's look at Jeremiah 16, 11. God tells us what it means to forsake him. We'll start in verse 10. The key verse is verse 11. It says, And it shall be when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, Azav, they have forsaken me, says the Lord, and have walked after other gods and served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. So God tells them what it means to forsake, forsake him. He said, You left me to serve other gods, and you started keeping their commandments. You stopped keeping my commandments, and you started keeping their commandments. That's what it means to serve other gods. That means to do what they say. And usually those other gods come with very few commandments, because what are, they, what are those false gods really for? They really speak to the flesh. They really appease the flesh. Because... The, you know how people are. People don't want to be told what to do. If you let your flesh just take over, your flesh just says, who's, who's God to tell me what to do? And that's why you have to crucify the flesh. That's why you have to bring it into subjection. And you have to let follow the ways of God because the ways of God are going to war against the flesh. 
Is it just because God doesn't want us to have fun? That's not what it's for. Because without holiness, what? No one will see God. No one will see God. So back in 1 Chronicles 28, Solomon's charge by God and by David is that the assembly of the, if you are leading the assembly of the Lord, the kahal of the Lord, the ecclesia of the Lord, then you're going to have to lead the people in the way of, ways of God <coughs> and according to his commandments. And what does Solomon call them, Ecclesiastes? <coughs> the Kohelet, the, the preacher. <laughs> Very poor translation. Doesn't mean preacher. Doesn't mean preacher. Because when you think of a preacher, it makes you think of you know a guy standing on a pulpit, but it's a Kohelet from where we, it comes from what word? Kahal. The leader of the Kahal, the leader of the congregation. Yep. All right, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Still looking at how the word ecclesia is used in the scriptures. How it would have been used in the Septuagint. Alright, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then verse 8. But the key verse is verse 2. Now when all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. Keep that phrase in mind, by the way. The water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Not Moses. The Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men. That word is kahal or ecclesia. And women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Hmm. First day of the seventh month. What day is that? That's the Feast of Trumpets. And that's the whole season. The trump, trumpets, Yom Kippur, tabernacles, that whole season. What's supposed to be read during that entire season according to Deuteronomy 31? The whole law. The whole, law, the whole Torah. <clears throat> it says, then he, talking about Ezra, verse 3, read it from, from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra is reading the Torah, the law, in front of the whole assembly of Israel, the whole ecclesia, and all of those who had understanding. Down to verse 8. Let's just start in verse 7. I want to continue. So Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So those people who were there, 
that were helping the people to understand the law. Notice that not everybody that was there was a learned scholar. So there are going to be people there that had some questions. So were they just, it's tough luck, buddy. You're just going to have to figure it out on your own. Verse 8 says, so the people who were helping to give understanding, do you see where it says, so they read distinctly? That word distinctly is the Hebrew word mephorash, mephorash. And that word mephorash comes from the Hebrew word parash, which means to make distinct, clear, or just to give somebody an understanding. That word parash is also where you get the word perishim, which means Pharisees. So what was the job supposed to be of those who were the Pharisees? What, was their, what were they supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be leading people to God, giving people the understanding. To, if they had questions, they were supposed to make clear the scriptures. Just like the people are doing right here in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. Because, like I just said, not everybody's a learned scholar. People are going to have questions. So that was the job of the, of the Pharisees, was to give them that understanding. Now, I, I said all that to say this. All right, do you see in verse chapter 8, verse 1, where it talks about the water gate? When I was reading through that, that phrase just popped off the page to me. So I started doing a little bit of digging. It said the Torah was read by Ezra in front of the water gate. So what is significant about the water gate? So it is part of the Simchat Beit Hashoivah ceremony. And the Simchat Beit Hashoivah ceremony is the rejoicing over the water pouring ceremony where they take the water from the pool of Siloam and they pour it over the, wa- over the altar and they're praying for the life-giving rain. So... I want to read a quote from a website called Chabad.org, and this is a non-Messianic Jewish website, but it's about the Simchat Beit HaShoeva ceremony. It says, quote, Fresh water was drawn from a wellspring called Mayan HaShiloach, which, means, which is the pool of, Shalom, pool of Siloam, just outside Jerusalem. As the flask of water were ushered in through the water gate of the temple, Trumpets sounded and fanfare ensued. So the water from the Pool of Siloam was taken in through the water gate. Now, what else of significance, what other important event happened at the Simchat Beit HaShoivah ceremony? John 7.37. Let's turn, turn to John 7.37. <laughs> John 7.37. So this event right here also happens at the Simchat Beit HaShoeva ceremony. Verse 37 says, On the last day, the great day of the feast. So that tells you when it is. That's the seventh day of tabernacles called Hoshana Rabbah. It says, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Why would he be just randomly walking down the street saying, If anyone comes to me, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
he's not just randomly walking down the street. What is happening? They're pouring the water onto the altar at this ceremony, and Yeshua's saying, that's not the life-giving water. I'm the life-giving water. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, from whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So, think about those two events. At the time of Ezra in Nehemiah, they were reading the scripture, the Torah, the words of life in front of the water gate. In the same place, Yeshua stands up and says, if you believe in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. So Ezra and Yeshua were both offering the words of life to all who would hear and accept it. And in the days of Ezra, what did it say? Who, what portion of Israel was gathered at the water gate? Was it some or was it all? all. It was all. It was all that had ears to, eat, ears to hear. And it said all the congregation, all the assembly of Israel, the ecclesia of Israel. But the irony of it all is, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, what were the, the, the Pharisees, so, so to speak, what were they supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be leading the people to God. In the time of Yeshua, what are the Pharisees doing? They're leading people away, away from God. So the people who were supposed to be helping give understanding to the word were the ones who in fact rejected the word. But who were the ones that wanted to hear and wanted to accept it? That is the one that Ezra, or Nehemiah chapter 8 calls the assembly. That's the kahal. That's the ecclesia. Not the ones who are believers in name only, but the ones who had that earnest desire to hear that word. And here's Yeshua saying, if you believe in me, out of your heart is going to flow rivers of living water. So what does Yeshua and the event in Nehemiah have to do with one another? Well, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So the words that Ezra was reading are the same words that Yeshua wrote, are the same words that Yeshua would have been teaching out of his mouth. It's the same words. And who was hearing it? Who was accepting it? God's people. God's called out assembly. God's ecclesia. And then the ones who called themselves God's people were the ones that were leading people away from God. The ones who were supposed to be leading people to the word were the ones who were rejecting the word. All right, Second Chronicles 30. Second Chronicles 30. Actually, verse 25. But yeah, 13, a very great assembly. Yep. I could have, I could have gone to 10,000 different scriptures. There's hundreds of scriptures that use the word ecclesia. But we're going to look at verse 25. 
because this one has a really kind of a nice little nugget hidden within it. We're going to read verses 23 through 25. It says, Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast, talking about Passover or unleavened bread, another seven days, and they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. Verse 25 says, The whole assembly of Ju Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners, keep that one in mind, who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So who was part of this assembly that rejoiced before the Lord with great rejoicing? It says those from Judah, the priests, the Levites, those who came from Israel, and the sojourner. That word is gerim. Ger. So normally you see the word gerim translated as stranger. But here they translated it as sojourners. But that's a completely different meaning for that word, for that word, because Gerim, those are the ones who chose to worship the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They wanted to do it. They chose to do it. So here it's talking about the people who kept the feast of unleavened bread. Who kept it? It was just those of Israel and those who chose to, to graft themselves into Israel. That's all. So you could say Jew and non-Jew alike. And why did they do it? Why did the people that were called here sojourners, but they're the Gerim, why did they choose to keep the feast with Israel? They wanted to be part of Israel. They wanted to be part of that kahal. They wanted to be part of that ecclesia. So what do we see here the ecclesia of God doing? Are they rejecting God's feast as so many people claim today? No. They're not rejecting God's feast. They are keeping God's feast. You know, and that, when I said that, that reminded me of Colossians chapter 2. Let's flip over to Colossians 2 really quickly. Because this is a go-to verse that a lot of people use and use it out of context. Colossians 2.16 starts with the word so, which means you can't start with so. It's in, the middle of a, it's in the middle of a thought. So you have to back up to verse 15. I mean, you could even back up even further than that. But it says, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers. Principalities and powers, that's demons. Those are the, the works of the enemy, the works of Satan. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Messiah. So, so many people read that as God doesn't care what you eat. God doesn't want you keeping the Sabbath. God doesn't want you keeping the feasts and the festivals. Messiah is doing all of that for you. He's doing all the heavy lifting for you so you don't have to do it. It's kind of like the Scrub and Bubbles commercial. You know, like they do all the work so you don't have to. 
God is not like that. God's not doing all the work so you don't have to. God says, I expect you to do these things because all of these things teacheth me. It says, the substances of Messiah, it talks about things to come. It prophesies of events to come because the substances of Messiah, it all points to Messiah. So even back here in 2 Chronicles 30, when, the, when Israel and the Gerim are keeping that feast of, of unleavened bread with great joy, they loved it so much and they had so much joy, they kept it another seven days. Why did they do it? They did it. They were enjoying it. They did it out of love because they did it out of their love of God. They hadn't done it in so long, they, they had completely forgotten about it. But they did it with love. And little did they know that all that they were doing here was teaching them about Messiah. It was looking forward to that death and that burial and that resurrection, which was to bring life. So when we read verses like this in, first, in Second Chronicles and then these verses in Colossians 2, you can see how they're both connected. It, they're just connected right at the hip when you see how they, how they both work together. And they don't teach anything opposing or opposite. All right, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 25. We're going to read Psalm 22, 25, and Psalm 40, verse 9. So we'll flip over there in just a moment. It says, 22, 25, it says, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. That's the word kahal or ecclesia, assembly. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. So what phrases do you see here that are synonymous The great assembly is synonymous with those who what? Fear him. Those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Does that mean to just shake and tremble? I mean, that's wise. But is that what that word fear carries across? It carries across obedience. It carries across reverence, love. So those who are within the great assembly, the kahal, the ecclesia, are those who fear him. And to fear him means to obey him. And to obey him means to keep his commandments. Go to Psalm 40 verse 9. It uses the same phrase, the great assembly. So that's why I wanted to read these verses back to back. Psalm 40 verse 9. I have no idea what I was about to say. Psalm 40 verse 9. It says, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. That word is the kahal or the ecclesia. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. In verse 9, it says, I have proclaimed the good news. That word is bisarti, from where the word basar, and what does basar mean? It, It can mean meat or flesh. But it's also translated as good news or the gospel. So the gospel of, I have proclaimed the gospel 
of righteousness in the great assembly. So the great assembly are those who fear him and and the ones to whom the good news or the gospel is proclaimed. In other words, it's the ones who hear the gospel and take it to heart. They don't reject the gospel. And what, according to John the Baptist and according to Yeshua himself, what's the, what are the first words that came out of their mouth when it refers to the gospel? What did they call everybody to do? Repent. repent. So the first words of the gospel are repent. What did Peter tell the people when they said, men and brethren, what, are we, what should we do? Repent. repent. So those who receive the gospel, those that are of the great assembly, the great kahal, the great ecclesia, those who are God's called out assembly, those are the people who receive the gospel. Those are the ones who repent. And those are the ones who repent and fear him and obey him. Is that any different than what Paul said over in the book of Acts? Let's go to Acts 26, where, he was, where Paul was standing before King Agrippa. Acts 26, 20. We'll start in verse 19, because verse 20 starts in the middle of a sentence. It says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, notice it's, it's the same message. It's not a different message. He's preaching the same message to those in Judea as he preaches to those in the nations. Here's the message. He says, number one, that they should repent. Turn to God, and then do whatever you feel like doing because the law has been abolished. What does it say? Do works befitting repentance. So when you repent and turn to God, your life should show it because you will start doing works which are showing your repentance. And so that's no different than what we read over here in Psalm 40 verse 9 where it talks about the good news of righteousness being proclaimed to those who are in the great assembly, those who are God's called out people. And those who are part, who have received that message of repentance, Psalm 22, 25 says, are those who fear him, those who obey him. Let's go to Psalm 89, 5. Psalm 89 tells us that God doesn't what? God doesn't change. But we're going to read Psalm 89, 5. Psalm 89.5 says, And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly, that's the word kahal or ecclesia, in the ecclesia of the saints. That word saints in Hebrew is the word kadashim. Hebrew word 6918, kadashim. The Greek equivalent of that would be hagios, which is the word used in Revelation 14.12. So in Revelation 14.12, we can see the assembly of the saints. So let's go to Revelation 14.12. 
Revelation 14, 12. So here's the kahal of the saints right here. Here's the ecclesia of the saints. God's called out assembly of saints. Let's see what they're doing. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints, the Kedashim, the Hagias. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So notice it didn't say or, it said and, meaning both. So the saints, that the Kedashim, the Hagias, that were mentioned back in Psalm 89, 5, what characterizes them? They keep the commandments of God, but they also have the faith of Yeshua. Can you, not, can you have one without the other? What did James say? said, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. How well can we show our faith without works? We call that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. That's called dead, just dead, dead faith. Notice verse 12 doesn't say the commandments of Yeshua. Yep. Which replace the commandments of God, doesn't it? Right. It says the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Right. So which commandments of God do you suppose that we're talking about? The ones from the very beginning. The ones we've been reading about all throughout the scriptures. Daniel, is there a difference in the faith of Yeshua and faith in Yeshua? <clears throat> that's a good question those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua well if you think about the faith of Yeshua who did Yeshua have his faith in his father and the father yep and what did Yeshua always try to point us to faith in God faith in the father yep yep so that your question, Penny, reminds me of First John. So go over to First John. First John twenty three. First John two twenty three. First John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Does that help? Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. It does. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I just think about what did... Yeshua constantly do. He was trying to direct prayer. He was trying to direct everything to the Father, but always. always. But if you have faith in the Son, that means you accept the Father also. If you deny the Son, it says you deny the Father also. All right. Joel 2.16. Joel 2.16. Alright, let's start in verse 12, because verse 16, verse 16 has the word ecclesia in it. But I want us I want to start in verse 12. It says, Now therefore, says the Lord, 
turn to me with all your heart. That word turn is a command, that shuvu. Turn to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Now, think about this. Fasting, weeping, mourning. Those are all outward signs, right? So anybody can put on a show. Think about all throughout the scripture, there were those people that said, Lord, do you not see our fasting? We're fasting for you. And God said, but where's your heart? That's where verse 13 comes in. So don't just turn to God with outward appearances. Verse 13 says, so rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, and call a sacred assembly. That A sacred assembly, that's an etzeret. That's a concluding assembly. But when is a fast con- consecrated? What's the only fast that's commanded in the scriptures? That's Yom Kippur. So that trumpet in verse 15, that's the trumpet consecrating Yom Kippur, consecrating the fast. That's the Shofar Hagadol, the great trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, an etzeret, a concluding assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber, and the bride from her dressing room. In verse 16 where it says, sanctify the congregation. The word congregation, that's the kahal. That's the ecclesia. And notice it doesn't say the congregation can do whatever it wants because the blood's covering it. It says, sanctify the congregation. Set apart the congregation. The congregation needs to be holy. Set apart. And then it says, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Talking about the return of Messiah. But what two phrases are interchangeable here? The congregation is also the bride. So the bride, the people, the congregation, those are all interchangeable terms. So in order for us to go with the bridegroom, are we to be living a lifestyle characterized by sin? Think about the, the foolish version, the foolish virgins. Why did they get rejected when the other five were taken in? Because they didn't have the oil. They were not prepared. They were still in the world. And they, were, they got caught off guard because they were not ready. Can we go back to 1 John 2 for a minute? 1 John 2, yes. Actually, 1 John 3. 1 John 3, yes. What's that word before righteousness? Practice. In verse 10. Yeah. Yep. Verse 10, 1 John 3, 10. It says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Manifest means blankly obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So it's not just that we have the righteousness of Messiah, 
but it says who practice. What does it mean to practice? To practice means to do it. To do it, to live it. And how many times throughout the, the scripture do we read God telling the people, guard it, but also do it, do it, do it, do it. Don't just think about it, do it. And that's the whole concept right here of practicing righteousness. Yep. And that's what God expects of his congregation. All right, so we just spent a lot of time looking at the word ecclesia, how it was used in the Old Testament. Now let's see how ecclesia is used in the New Testament. It's used in hundreds of different places. In fact, it's used in... I saw earlier, it's around 115 places in the New Testament. But we're not going to look at all 115, but we're going to look at some that really, really pack a punch. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. So we want to see how the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament. 97, 98% of the time, the word ecclesia is translated as the word church in the New Testament. So in all the scriptures that we read from the Old Testament, how many times, in all the scriptures we read, how many times did you see the word church? None. None. You saw the word assembly. You saw the word congregation. And what characterized that assembly? Was it lawlessness or was it righteousness? Righteousness. Righteousness. And that scripture you just pointed us to in 1 John 3 backs all of that up. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Acts 2.47. So is this a different meaning to the word ecclesia in the New Testament? Acts 2.47. We can't start in the middle of a sentence, so we've got to start at verse 46. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The word church is the word ecclesia. So you could translate it as assembly. And God added to the called out assembly daily those who were being saved. And that phrase, being saved, is a present participle. So those that were in the process of being saved were added to the church daily. So ongoing action. So was this just a one-time declaration of faith? They walked down the aisle, they got dunked in the tub, and everything was good? Or was this a lifestyle change? Think about what Paul said. He said, you repent, you turn to God, and then you do works befitting repentance. That's that ongoing process. That ongoing process. So the Lord added to the assembly, the ecclesia, those who were being saved. All right, Acts 7. Okay, so this, this is where the translators get creative or get, let's just say, they want to put a, 
coding over some certain words. All right, Acts 7.38. So Stephen is giving his defense before the, the Sanhedrin. We'll start in verse 37. It says, this, this was that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now remember, we just read this a few moments ago back in Deuteronomy 18. Who were these words given to? The ecclesia back then. So this is the same, these are the same words that are given to the ecclesia now. Verse 38, it says, This is he, talking about Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. Do you see that word congregation? That's the word ecclesia. Everywhere else they translate as church, they translate it here as congregation. Because what, are they, what is the, the connotation here? Oh, that was Old Testament. That was the... Israel in the wilderness. That isn't the church now. It's the same word. So they actually translated the word properly here. They translated the word correctly here. So the word could be translated as congregation. The word could be translated as assembly. So this is he, talking about Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. So what was the messenger, the, the Lord, what was the Lord giving to Moses in the wilderness? The Torah. the Torah, the commandments. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. Okay, do you see that phrase, the living oracles? Okay, for some reason that phrase just really bothered me. Because when you look, when you just go and do a simple Google search of the word oracle, it pulls up all kinds of stuff about pagan gods and Greek mythology. All the, it, that's the, the connotation that it, it puts across the word oracle. So I went to the concordance and I looked up that word. So that word oracles is the Greek word logion, L O G. I-O-N, logion. And that's Greek word 3051. Logion, if you're familiar with, with Greek, comes from the word logos, which means word. But this is what the Thayer's Greek lexicon says the word logion means. Logion means words or utterances of God. Or the contents of the Mosaic law. So whenever you see that word logion in the scriptures, it means words or utterances of God or the contents of the Mosaic law. Now, notice they're trying to, to separate the two, but what do we know about what they're calling the Mosaic law? Those are the words of God. Because who spoke the words to Moses? God spoke the words to Moses. We read that in Nehemiah chapter 8, that the, the Torah of Moses came from the Lord. So those utterances or words of God, according to 2 Timothy 3, that's what we call Scripture. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. So in other words, the living words of God that were, giving to, that were given to Moses and the congregation in the wilderness continue today. Because 
that word living is the Greek word zao, Z-A-O, and that's a present participle. So that living word means it's continuing. It's a continuing living word. So that means God's words that came out of his mouth to Moses are continuing to live today. So the words that were given to that God gave to Moses and the congregation in the wilderness are the same words that continue today. Go to 2 Timothy 3. Verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all Scripture, and when he says Scripture, he's talking about the what we call the Old Testament, the Tanakh. It says, all Scripture is given by God, by inspiration of God. That literally means God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what Torah is. It's instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, did Paul tell Timothy, you need to go to this seminary, you need to learn from this teacher, you need to do this, you need, you need to do all these different things that God didn't commit? No. Tim, Paul told Timothy, all you need is the Scripture. That's what you need in order to make you complete. Because what are you going to use to teach? What are you going to use to admonish, to to give correction, to give instruction. You're not going to use your opinion. You're going to use the Scripture. And that's that same Scripture, that same living Word that's mentioned over here in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, where it talks about the living Word, the living oracles. Those are the words that Moses received from God and shared with the congregation, the called-out assembly. So what are the words that God expects us to follow? The same words. The same living words. So if they're living words, how can they be dead? You see in Romans 3 also. Romans 3. Verse 2. Yep. And it's the same word, oracles, yep. We'll start in verse 1. It says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the living words, the words that came out of the mouth of God. So those God-breathed words are those oracles of God that they call it. So that's... So now you can see why I have a kind of a beef with that word oracle because that doesn't carry that meaning. You know how we always talk about words have a light translation? You know, this, this to me just has a completely wrong translation because that's not carrying that meaning of the words that came out of God's mouth. All right, we're going to look at one more scripture for tonight. Let's go to Acts Chapter 19, looking at another instance of where the word, how the word ecclesia is used. Acts 
All right, Acts 19, starting in verse 32. Paul's just made a bunch of people mad because he's putting a, putting a hurt on their business of idol making. So what better thing to do than cause a tumult, right? Verse 32, it says, Therefore some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Do you see the word assembly in verse 32? That's the word ecclesia. What sense would it make to say, for the church was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together? We're talking about a group of idol-worshiping pagans. So what sense would it make to say the church came together? How did they translate it? They translated it correctly. They translated it using the word assembly. We also see it in verse 39. It says, If you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. That word is ecclesia. And in verse 41, And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So all three instances of the word assembly are the word ecclesia. And that's actually the correct translation. And that's the translation we mostly saw when we looked at the scriptures back in the Old Testament. So that's the, the correct translation of that word, ecclesia. So you could translate it as assembly or as congregation. We're going to stop here for tonight. Can we have one more cross-reference to Acts 2.47? Yeah. Acts 2.47, yes, what? To Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2.19. They don't use the same words, but talking about the same group. We are going to be reading that tomorrow. Then let's wait. Hmm. Yep. Hey, great minds think alike, right? Yep. So we'll pick up um, with that tomorrow. Yep. Because you're right, it does use the word assembly, but it uses some different, some different words there. So we'll, we'll look at it tomorrow. So we'll pick up tomorrow with um, looking at the word ecclesia in Romans 16, verse 5.